going on, everyone? Welcome back to the Irrational Sports Podcast. As always, I'm Ken Harrison. It is college football Thursday evening, and we got a new guest host in the house for this week, my old work colleague, Cameron Crossett. How are you, man? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Ken? I am well. Thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks for the invite. No worries, dude. I guess this keeps with the theme of just about every guest of the pod has at one point worked at Dealer Socket. (laughs) <laughs> Gotta keep keep it going, man. Keep it going. Keep it going. Even though I'm no longer there, that's where uh, I know lots of people that know sports there at the socket. So it definitely helps. <laughs> I've you, actually uh, I've been trying to get your old buddy Jesse to jump on and do a pod about his Oakland days, but we haven't made it happen yet. Well, we might have to uh, see how the playoff race shakes out because. I, I have a feeling Oakland might be in that wild card with the Yankees. And, I mean, there's still a lot of baseball to go, but, you know, it uh, it should be an exciting stretch. That AL West is kind of a fun race to watch. It is intense. It's coming on the wire. And as a Giants fan, I have nothing to root for. So despite the fact that many A's fans like to run their mouths about the Giants, I've got no animosity towards the A's. I hope they do well. So... <laughs> Well, as a Red Sox fan, it's a great time of the year. College football and uh, competitive baseball. So Indeed it is. And I forgot at one point in your work life, you lived back east, didn't you? I did, up in New Hampshire. So I was right there with, with all the chowderheads, and <laughs> it was a lot of fun. And I guess not a lot of college football up there, although Chip Kelly did coach at New Hampshire before his Oregon days. He did, yep. It's uh, it's definitely about the pro teams there. It's all Boston all the time, and especially, you know, with the Patriots and the Red Sox. So yeah, it's got to be hard for like a Boston college to cut through, and then you there's really not a whole lot else up there, college football wise, no, is there? There there's not. It's it's mostly uh, relegated to, you know, passion projects. You know, alumni that like to see their school do well or. Um, you know, that Harvard-Yale uh, game is always big in the Ivy Leagues, but, you know, outside of, of those that maybe went to the school <laughs> or just the notoriety, I don't think it uh, does much on the uh, the sports styles there. No, hard to get excited about the future CEOs of America playing each other in a football <laughs> game, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, this being your first time on the pod, why don't you tell the people a little bit about who your college teams are and who, who you follow closely? Yeah, so I, uh, I'm a BYU fan, for better or worse, and at times it's been better, but lately it's been worse, <laughs> but uh, we'll see what happens this year, and for me, the, the big thing with college football is just kind of growing up watching college game day on ESPN, I remember pre-internet days that that was the go-to for you know really getting that national landscape and uh, learning about all the different teams so I don't necessarily have a secondary team that I root for heavily Um, I have enjoyed following schools when they've when they've been good though and kind of watching great college football at at different points so USC back in the uh, Reggie Bush years that was some fun football to watch and um, you know, some of the Southern schools, I used to always be excited for the, um, Florida, Florida state games and the Florida state Miami games. Oh yeah. So that stuff. And then, 
you know, I'm, I love the rivalries. I think that's my favorite part of college football. So having some of the Stanford, Notre Dame and uh, USC, Notre Dame. And obviously we had Michigan, Notre Dame last week, but I kind of enjoy it on the uh, the national landscape as well quite a bit. Well, you know, that really is one of the beautiful things about college football is the sense of, I feel like more so than any other sport, I can sit down and watch two teams I don't care about and still very much enjoy the spectacle. Oh, yeah. And that doesn't happen as much on the pro level. Maybe it's because unless the Giants are involved in baseball or the Niners in football, I don't care as much. But for college football, yeah, if it's a good rivalry game, you know, same as you growing up on, like, the old... Miami-Florida State games, Miami-Notre Dame, all those kind of rivalries, that's where the excitement was. Mm-hmm. Made it great. Yeah, it's, uh, when I think back to my college football, you know, introduction, the thing that comes to mind was pre-internet days where you'd watch college football all day on Saturday, and then, um, you'd have to wait till Monday afternoon till I got home from school and that's when the newspaper had finally arrived and you could you know go find the uh, AP and the USA Today coaches poll and see you know what happened and nowadays uh, with the internet we know that stuff on Sunday afternoon but yeah that... it changes quickly I remember very similarly waiting for Sports Illustrated to arrive either on Wednesday or Thursday yeah and that was like kind of the that was like the bible of, of my college football like updated polls you know updated write-ups on all these games everything else the internet has changed a ton of that for sure well looking back on a week one a lot of exciting games and as much as we like to at least Stephen and i as i'm sure you've heard we don't bag on the sec but we do gripe about the sec bias but at sometimes you know that sec bias is real because those guys won three large significant cross Power Five conference matchups. Yes. With Auburn taking out Washington, Bama blowing out Louisville, and LSU dominating the U. The U is not back, by the way. <laughs> the U is not back, but but I don't necessarily think the LSU is back either. No, I, no. In fact, we'll get to that in a little bit because yeah, I, I tend to agree. Um, Miami played a really really bad game. LSU took advantage of some mistakes, but LSU did not exactly light the world on fire either. Still yeah. some concerns with quarterback, so we'll get to that. But one of the things Stephen and I typically do is we are, by and large, a more of a Pac-12-focused pod, with Stephen being a Stanford fan and, and having a lot of USC fans in my family. Not a great weekend for the Pac-12, especially rough for a conference that went 1-9 in bowl games last year. Has not really measured up and often is looked at as one of the definitely if not the lowest, one of the lower Power 5 conferences, some chances to make some statements this weekend and did not go as as planned, starting, of course, with Auburn and Washington, a game which Auburn won 21-16 down in Georgia. And I feel like we learned some things about Washington, or at least kind of had some ideas about Washington reinforced from what we've seen the last few years. What stood out to you? What's the number one thing for you? Jake Browning, for all of his abilities, is not a mobile quarterback. And against elite D-lines, he does continue to struggle. Yeah. And Auburn really generated a tremendous pass for us, especially early and late. And although Browning was able to make some good pinpoint throws deep, it was not enough to, to overcome that pass rush. And Auburn really did show up and dominate the line. 
Yeah, it's amazing when you're when you're playing that big athletic speed on the line, regardless of of uh, how accurate you are. If the wide receivers aren't uh, getting separation, and you you don't have that mobility, they will just uh, tee off on you, and it can be a long game. Washington was without their starting left tackle, and that obviously played, it had a role in the impact. Now the flip side, of course, it's Auburn could have put this game away a lot earlier, but struggled with some of their own mistakes, was not very effective in the red zone. And I, I was reminded that this was a Washington team, Washington team that was second in the nation in rush defense last year. And Auburn, known for the past few years under Gus, Gus Malzahn as a power running team, struggled to get the ball going on the ground. Only 3.3 yards per rush in the game. A lot of stuffs from that Washington D-line. So I think Washington will still be a force to be reckoned with in the Pac-12, but it was not not enough to overcome Auburn. Yeah, I don't... You definitely can't uh, put a fork in Washington by by no means. I mean, it is a an out-of-conference loss, and that may come back to uh, hurt them when we get talking about the playoff, but there's so much football to be played that... You know, they everything I think is still on the table for them. So I think with Washington, the if we've learned one thing over the past couple of years with the college football playoff, it's that if you're going to lose, you want to lose early. And if Auburn, you know, continues to to play well and they make some noise in the SEC, then that might come back to be one of those things that's considered a good loss. And with it only being week one, there, there's no telling, you know, how the season's going to, to shake out. I mean, Alabama obviously looked great and some other teams looked great, but there's everything, in my opinion, is still on the table for them that if they take care of business in the, in the Pac-12, that uh, I could see them overcoming this and still having a slot in the, uh, in the playoff when it's all said and done. Yeah, I agree. Stephen and I talked a little last week about this. If it's a close loss for Washington, definitely does not end their playoff chances. It, that margin for error has gotten significantly slimmer, though, because it's going to be tough for a two-loss Pac-12 champion to sneak their way in. For better or worse, the SEC definitely gets the benefit of the doubt more than the Pac-12 does. Yes. And a two-loss SEC champion likely would get more of a pass than a two-loss Pac-12 champ. Not saying it's right. That's just kind of how it's worked for the past few years. So definitely not a killer for for UW, but that margin of vict- or that margin for error definitely does get slimmer. You know, from the Auburn side, it almost is the opposite, where Auburn can afford a slip up along the way, and that signature win against Washington, assuming they continue to do well, is going to bode well for them. Auburn having that double whammy late in the year of Georgia and Alabama. Heck, if they run the table up to that point and lose one of those two games that may not be um, too much to overcome given this early victory and how the rest of the season plays out. Yeah, that it's always interesting with the SEC because of Auburn and Alabama being in the same division there in the SEC. Obviously, only one of them can play for the conference title. So it's always interesting to see because it wasn't it last year that Alabama, they... Alabama snuck they, in despite snuck in, not right? winning. Yeah, despite not winning the division because they lost the Iron Bowl to Auburn, 
Auburn yeah. won the West Division and then end up losing to Georgia, who they had already beaten a few weeks before, which is kind of a sad twist of fate there. And yet, Alabama managed to slide their way in. So it would take a lot for Auburn to get the Alabama treatment, but there is precedent. It's not totally unreasonable. So a signature win for Auburn, and just coming a little bit from the Auburn fan perspective, Auburn was 1-7 in season openers going into this against out-of-conference foes and was doing it in that new Mercedes-Benz Dome in Georgia where they lost both the SEC Championship and the Peach Bowl last year. So mm. quite a few demons exercised for these Auburn Tigers, which made me very happy. I do have some concerns. I don't think they're going to face a run defense as stout as Washington's till later in the season. So I think the running game will get untracked. Jared Stidham, however, does continue despite... He's very accurate, but he holds the ball a little too long. And I do think Washington did a great job of locking down Auburn's receivers, but his decision-making is a little slower, waits a little too long, and takes a few too many sacks. And that was kind of what undid Auburn late last year. So those questions linger, but still, as the Auburn fan, I'm feeling quite happy coming out of that victory against Washington. Nice momentum moving forward. I think there is some nice momentum, but things get very real very quick for them because yes. they've got LSU come not this weekend but the following and yeah. so in fact I will be at that game in Auburn really yes going down there with my dad with my grandfather who's a, who's an Auburn alum and my son and my brothers we'll all be down there for the LSU game very exciting so and we, which definitely we'll talk about LSU in a few minutes definitely takes on some more intrigue after that opening one for LSU so Yes, it does. We are excited about that. The other thing I didn't realize was the Auburn does have uh, Georgia and Alabama, but they also have Texas A&M right before that Georgia game. So that's a real murderer's row right there. Three out of their last four. I mean, that is, and, and oddly enough, this is a weird little bit of Auburn and A&M trivia. The home team has yet to win a game ever since A&M joined the conference. Interesting. Did not know that. So yeah, that's... quite quite strange. They've uh, Auburn's lost in 2012, 2014, and 2016 at home to A and M, but beaten them on the road all those other times. So go figure. And and this year it's a home game for it Auburn. It is a home game, so, so we'll see how that goes down. Well, coming back to the Pac-12, a few more results. Uh, we'll go through these a little bit quicker. But Stanford 31, San Diego State 10. Stanford moves on to their Week 2 showdown with USC, which we'll, we'll get to that in our previews. Really, the only major note from this game is Stanford played well despite a really quiet game from Bryce Love. They did play well, but it took them... I mean, that whole first half, it was... I mean, I think it was 7-0 or 7-3 for most of it, and then Stanford went in at halftime up 10-7. And so it was a pretty, pretty close game that first half. Yeah, and then really, you know, KJ Costello was able to move the ball well through the air, which Stephen kind of alluded to as being the kind of the key thing that needs to happen for Stanford to have success this year. And I was really surprised, although San Diego State is known for having a pretty stout run defense, especially for a group of five team, but just really kind of fascinating that they were able to hold Bryce Love in check that much. Yeah, that is surprising. And I think I think that's more of a an anomaly as opposed to a trend. I think that's just first game of the season. You never know how it's going to play out. And I, I don't think that trend will, will hold 
yeah, for the rest of the year. Yeah, I think uh, FC, excuse me, will be in for a wake-up call next week against those guys. All right, another result from the Pac-12. A very intriguing USC throwing out their true freshman QB and freshman wide receiver star, beating UNLV 43-21. And as also as an SC fan, SC and Auburn are kind of my two uh, my two college football loves. The thought of having JT Daniels and Amon Ross St. Brown for the next three years is pretty exciting. <laughs> Knowing that you know, no matter what happens, we got th- we get three years of these guys. That's uh, it's pretty cool. Uh, slow start, and I wasn't really concerned about the offense. They moved the ball well, but couldn't really get the ball in the end zone until late in the second half, or really late in the second quarter and going into the second half. Had to settle for a lot of field goals. The one thing that I found really kind of scary, they allowed UNLV to rush for 308 yards. Yeah, that's... You don't expect that from a power five conference that is supposed to be able to recruit the way USC should recruit on the line. And exactly. And I think what's really weird about that too, is the assumption has been going into the season that the line was one of USC's strengths. I can't tell you the last time that I remember UNLV rushing for 308 yards. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at the box score here and they had that Thomas go off for 136 and mm-hmm. Rogers go off for 82. I mean, to almost have, two uh rushers over triple digits it's that's uh that's a little scary it is a little sketchy and again kind of a scary scary week two matchup coming for usc with bryce love and stanford waiting knowing how well unlv rushed the ball against them but let's get to another pac-10 misstep and a game which i'm sure you watched quite quite with a lot of attention as did i byu 28 Arizona 23 and the Heisman campaign for Khalil Tate did not get off to a glowing start did it it did not it was I have to tell you I'm I am surprised the I do the ESPN college pick them mm-hmm. where you assign the confidence level with with what you know which team you think is going to win and I had Arizona beating BYU slotted in at the six-point slot. So, so fairly confident. I was fairly confident Arizona was going to win that game. And I I was shocked, uh, to, to be honest with you. <laughs> that makes two of us. I, I, I had almost guaranteed this as a loss. And in fact, sitting around Saturday, we were about to head over to a friend's house to watch kind of the evening slate of games. And my buddy texted me, he's like, hey, man, you know, it's only like 80 degrees in Tucson right now. There's still tickets. Do we go down to see the BYU game? And I'm like, man, it's like two hours down there. They're going to get their butts kicked. Like, there's other games I also want to watch in addition to that game. So, nah, let's not do it. But, yeah, I think the general assumption was they were not going to do that well against Arizona. And, and I'm curious, you know, Cameron, from your perspective, was this uh, – BYU's defense obviously played well. How much of it was BYU's defense, and how much of it was some curious play calling from Arizona? I I think as the game wore on, I think BYU fed off of the energy, mm-hmm. but but I think that train got rolling with the spotty play calling. I mean, there was a couple of times where they they went three and out, or uh, and with the three and outs, I think there was at least one time that I think they threw deep on first and on third down mm-hmm. and. It just shocked me that, you know, you don't have to 
you don't have to get it all back at once. And the the fact that they weren't sustaining drives, I think, is what really killed them. Because then I think the uh, exhaustion set in for the uh, defense, and uh, I think BYU started to gain some confidence as as they saw that happen. So I think had had Arizona, you know, just dinked and dunked the field, uh, the football down the field, and uh, if Tate had been a little bit more mobile, created some some plays with his legs, I think that game might have turned out differently. This has been really fascinating to me because I'm sure if you've listened to past pods with Stephen and I, we have spent the whole offseason basically ridiculing Arizona State for going out and hiring Herm Edwards and looking at Arizona like, man, you guys scored a killer deal in landing Kevin Sumlin. And maybe too early for an overreaction. There's only one game, but at the same time, we kind of thought Sumlin coming from a good A&M program only had one double-digit win season but was known for good, prolific offenses, obviously had... Johnny Manziel, another mobile quarterback, put up crazy numbers in his system. And I was, I was really just kind of baffled by the fact of they rarely ran any design runs for Khalil, for Khalil Tate. It was, it was just shocking. And I would expect, while BYU's defense is better than the defense I remember as a kid, it is still not necessarily the quickest defense out there. No. And Speed just, is not our friend. No. <laughs> it just shocked me that they didn't run more, you know, more design runs for him. Part of me also kind of does think how much of this does come back to Khalil Tate. I don't know if you remember in the offseason, once Rich Rod was let go, one of the guys Arizona was looking at was Ken Yumatolo from Navy. And Mm -hmm. Khalil Tate kind of famously texted, or excuse me, tweeted about, like, hey, I'm not an option quarterback. Like, I don't want this guy to be my coach. You know, I, I don't want to just be a running quarterback. Problem is, running is what helps him win games. Yeah. I think. Yeah, he, I mean, I can understand that you may not want to run the triple option. And if he's got aspirations to play in the NFL, which based off of the, you know, Heisman praise that was mm-hmm. being heaped upon him and, and it was being laid on thick in yeah, that game. it was. Um, you know, I'm sure he has aspirations to play next level. And in a situation like that, um, you know, you're not... You're not going to do that as a uh, running quarterback, but I think he he needs to look around and say, okay, you know, Russell Westbrook, Cam Newton, um, these are some guys that that make something happen and um, use their legs when when they need to, and it's kept them employed and kept them uh, as pretty successful while also still being able to make the throws. Yeah, and definitely hard, too, when you only complete 50% of your passes, as Tate did, and you only run for 14 yards. Hard hard to make that happen. So definitely an odd, interesting game. But from the BYU perspective, a, a super encouraging win. And I kind of think of it in the sense these guys have spent the past year coming off that four and eight year, kind of getting their noses rubbed in it everywhere about, you know, they're kind of garbage, they're not a good team anymore, so on and so on. It is only one win, but it's got to feel good for them to come out and beat a team like Arizona on the road like they did. I think so, and I'm, I'm curious as to, do you, do you really think it's, um, I mean, if you look at the personnel, you could argue that we have less talent this year than we did last year in the skill positions, 
there's a lot of young guys that, you know, maybe they're very talented and we just don't know all their names yet. But, I mean, do you think this is a, a byproduct of Grimes' offense? Do you think it's uh, maybe Mangum having a little bit of a chip on his shoulder? I mean, where, where do you think this is all rooted in? Or is this just, like you said, eight months of, of thinking about, you know, how it all went terribly wrong last year and this was the emotion pouring out and they you know, stepped up for one game? That's a really good question. And it's funny you bring up the, the lack of talent. Uh, before the game started, I was mentioning to my buddy, I'm like, man, I don't know anybody on this team. And... Part of that, you know, is probably just I don't pay a ton of attention to BYU, not like I used to. Um, maybe just being let down too many times. Also, coming off of a bad season. But I remember thinking, like, I don't even know who's on this team this year. Are these guys <laughs> even really that good? Um, and and I, I definitely think, from what I saw, the the offense was not super explosive, but it it ran the ball well. They didn't shoot themselves in the foot with mistakes. And I do think looking at the offense from the past two seasons compared to this offense, Grimes was definitely an upgrade. And, and it feels weird and dirty to knock Ty Detmer, who, as a kid, that was like my hero. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I do think Grimes is a better fit for this offense. And I think between that and just maybe better, more attentive coaching, more attention to details this offseason, they were at least able to go out and secure a good, steady road win. And... I don't know if that means that BYU football is back, whatever that means. But I do think, you know, Stephen and I last week looked at the schedule and I thought, these guys will be lucky to win five games. Mm-hmm. But now, winning that Arizona game, I feel like the, the bull math definitely changes some and looks to be more in their favor. And realistically, I think at least a bull berth is, is feasible for this team. And I, I think if you get to six, seven wins this year, it, that is a significant step forward. And a good move in the right direction. I, I think they're going to have, obviously, they got a very tough schedule with some very tough games. But it's definitely a positive step. And I think the challenge with BYU always is, can they sustain it over the next few weeks? Yeah. Yeah, it's... I'll say the thing that was most encouraging was the ball distribution for me. Yes. And I think they had 10 receivers that had a reception. And... I mean, don't get me wrong. I loved back in the day Austin Colley and Dennis Pitta and, you know, having that go-to receiver. But it, it was nice to see, even though I didn't know the names of everybody making the catches, <laughs> it was nice to see, um, you know, not being able to have the, the defense concentrate on a single guy or uh, have Mangum feel like he had to force it to one guy as a, as a safety blanket. So... It'll be interesting to see if that continues. Yeah, and again, a solid win. I think some questions will linger here for Arizona. And, you know, they've got they got a tough group of five matchup going out to play Houston this next week against another strong defense led by Ed Oliver. So I'm really going to be curious to see what they do with the Khalil Tate and if they do try to change things up here in week two. Yeah, it's definitely, uh, definitely an interesting game there. And... You know, Houston's explosive, at least historically. I, I didn't check what their first game was this year, but Houston knows how to score points. And so um, it'll also be interesting to see how that defense reacts as well because, uh, you know, BYU, they 
they were pretty balanced and they moved the ball and we'll, it'll be interesting to see how they react as well on the defensive side. It definitely will be. Well, one more Pac-12 game we'll talk about in a little bit of detail, although, to be honest, I only caught maybe five minutes of this game. It just happened at a lot of time, a bunch of other games. But Chip Kelly's return to college football does not go well. Cincinnati 26, UCLA 17. Another bit of an embarrassment for the conference. And we knew it was going to take Chip Kelly a while to make UCLA a to get him to an organ-like level, but it might even take longer because that offense looked just really sluggish and really methodical. Yeah, UCLA, that's... It, it's interesting that they they did struggle. And for me, Cincinnati, they seem to be one of those teams that... Um, it, it's interesting to watch them in football because they will... Uh, They'll surprise you with with a game where they just have some incredible offense, and and it can be fun to watch them at different times. But that's a that's a game that UCLA can't lose. I mean, you're, you're talking um, that's that's just with the amount of talent and the the expectations that go along with UCLA, you can't be losing to Cincinnati. And I get that, that it happens, but it's, uh, it, it looks bad. And I think one of the things that really hurt UCLA is I, I was never that high in Wilton Spate when he was at Michigan. And granted, injuries knocked him out of this game early, but UCLA has struggled for years to have a good backup contingency at the quarterback position, and they struggled again this week. I think the one silver lining for UCLA, a dreadful defense last year, I think they were like 122nd in the nation. They didn't manage to hold Cincinnati to 304 total yards. Cincinnati's not exactly a juggernaut offensively, but that is a semblance of progress for UCLA. But things get even rougher because they got to go to Norman, Oklahoma, and play the Sooners next week. And I can't imagine that's going to go well for them. So the uh, you know Chip has never lost back-to-back games in college, and I think that might be changing next week. Yeah, my. Uh... My money would be on Oklahoma in that game. Big time. Well, one other just kind of odd note in the Pac-12, Herm Edwards, the much maligned ASU hire, had a much more successful opening than his uh, his counterpart in Tucson. Uh, Arizona State blows out Texas San Antonio at home. Granted, that's not quite the same caliber of an opponent as BYU, but uh, the Herm Edwards era starts out with a win. And, yeah, let's talk about maybe some of these other just kind of high-ranking matchups you know, Alabama, you think about the titles Nick Saban won with pretty mediocre quarterbacks, and now the weapon he has in Tua Tagovailoa, it's kind of scary. It's really scary, and it's flat-out unfair at times. I mean, I not unfair in the sense that uh, anything should happen to him, but just as a, as a college football fan... Um, oh, hang on a second. I think I got some volume challenges here. There you go. Still there? Yep. Perfect. Sorry, my volume had dropped again at that part. So but I got it all. So, any other so Alabama thoughts? Yeah, with Alabama, I mean, it was. It, they're going to be scary good, and with Tua, you know, I, I think that national championship game just catapulted his confidence to 
you know, next level to mm-hmm. where I don't know that he's got any game that he'll go into that he's nervous about. I mean, he came in down 21 points or whatever it was last year in the national championship and to rally back and win that game. I mean, I don't think there's any game that he goes into that he's he's nervous about at all. Yeah, I mean, just an incredible talent. Bama has never had a, a quarterback that would be considered one of the top quarterbacks in the nation during this Nick Saban run. And they finally have a guy that, you know, dangerous with his feet, kind of like Jalen Hurts was, but also extremely dangerous with his arm. And we, we used to joke quite a bit about the old, uh, what we would call the Alabama boa constrictor, where in the past they would slowly just choke the life out of you. It might be 13-0 at halftime, but the offense was just steady and methodical with chew-up yards, chew-up time. They'd wait for you to make a mistake. They'd get a special teams or a defensive touchdown. But, man, this was like the, the, the Bama-like insta-kill. <laughs> like, they just came out and just straight up firebombed Louisville. I mean, it's uh, it's a scary new level of Alabama. And I just, I don't enjoy watching them because these games are just never in doubt. They just, they don't make mistakes. You know, these games are never really close. They just kind of, they can lay waste to teams. So It does make it a little anticlimactic until they either have that, you know, slip up that's completely unexpected mm-hmm. or... You get down to, you know, the end of the year when maybe they're playing some of their best competition. But yeah, I, I think it, I try to remember the exact stat. I want to say Nick Saban still has yet to beat a nine-win Auburn team. So if Auburn's good this year, <laughs> that could still be a showdown. Well, let's jump to a, a very intriguing game, and I know this is a game you and I might want to spend a little more time on. Notre Dame twenty-four, Michigan seventeen, and. I, I gotta wonder. The shine is definitely starting to fade for Mr. Jim Harbaugh, isn't it? I think so. I mean, I think he's nine and nine in his last eighteen yeah. games. And you compare that to Saban. I mean, I think Saban's lost like nine games in the last five years or something. I mean, I don't, I can't remember off the top of my head what it is, but it's, it's been a long time since. Uh, uh, it's taken a lot of years for them to lose nine games. And to have the two of them being paid similar amounts, um, I mean, call the cops. That's highway robbery up there in, uh, in Ann Arbor. Yeah, it's definitely a, a failure to live up to some sky expectations. I think what's interesting about Harbaugh is this is a guy that has had success at the pro level, and most college coaches – don't do well in the pros. I mean, Nick Saban kind of famously flamed out in Miami. Mm-hmm. But here's here's Harbaugh, who comes you know, off of three NFC title game appearances, a trip to the Super Bowl with the Niners. And obviously, one of his biggest weaknesses at Michigan has been the quarterback position. And I think everyone was pretty optimistic. I was optimistic about Shea Patterson. Shea Patterson was okay against Notre Dame, but it seemed like Michigan had absolutely no answer for Notre Dame's defensive line. Yeah, the the thing that I struggle with is this is year year four for Harbaugh, right? Yep. So, and uh, it's a graduate transfer for uh, for Patterson, right? He came from Ole Miss. He came from Ole Miss. Actually, I think he actually has two seasons of eligibility, though. I think he's got this okay. year and next year, partially due to the, all the sanctiony issues going on at Ole Miss. I think it was an easier transfer without gotcha. a, without a redshirt year. 
it just surprises me that Michigan and Harbaugh haven't been able to go in and recruit, you know, uh, a top five quarterback in the nation uh, as far as recruiting class. And maybe they have, and they just haven't panned out. But mm-hmm. it's it's interesting to me, and I look back on it and say, okay, is because Harbaugh was at Stanford when when Andrew Luck was there, right? He was. He was. He was there. I think he left before Luck's last year. Yeah. But it's kind of fascinating because you look at, obviously, with Luck, he had a lot of success at Stanford. Mm-hmm. With the Niners, mixed results. Success early. He coached a good year out of Alex Smith. Obviously, Kaepernick had his crazy explosive 2012 under under Harbaugh. But, you know, those last two years, Kaepernick kind of flatlined. It didn't really progress. And, and I think we're kind of seeing that same carryover at Michigan where – the offense is just kind of plodding and methodical, and the quarterbacks don't really seem to improve. I I completely agree, and I was thinking about this earlier. And you know, I think uh, I hope you don't laugh at this comparison, but I was thinking about this in regards to Ty Detmer mm. and the the uh, similarities I see are that. You know, struggling with the quarterback position, which is an area that, I mean, obviously Harbaugh is much more accomplished, has had way more coaching experience, and, you know, was one bad series of, of play calls at the goal line away from a Super Bowl ring there oh, with the Ravens. I, I still know. have nightmares about it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, those those were four bad play calls right there, but the, uh, I just look at that and say, okay, this is what we saw with Detmer where, you know, Detmer wasn't uh, great in the pros. Harbaugh wasn't great in the pros, and kind of coming back to legacy schools where um, a little bit of the golden boy, and then uh, the area that you think that they would help deliver would be that quarterback position, and uh, it hasn't happened. Now, Harbaugh obviously, uh, again, much more coaching experience, and and I think that that's probably where the similarities end but it's just interesting to see see both of uh those guys struggle with that i think that that's a really good point and what's kind of fascinating to me about harbaugh it's and i to denver i think kind of in the same vein it's it's almost a lack of creativity offensively i I feel like these offenses are a little too predictable obviously you want to be able to run the ball but almost a little too run focused and it is kind of unique, too. I, I think Michigan, it, it might be a little early to write off Shea Patterson completely, but that offensive line just looked completely un, un, unprepared and really couldn't block that. And obviously a lot of credit should go to Notre Dame's defensive line, but it's tough, again, when you look at a school as good as Michigan with the resources, how they haven't recruited better on the O-line either. Mm-hmm. And then you carry that over to the defensive side. With so many starters returning, people thought Michigan's defense would be lights out. And while you know Notre Dame didn't rip it up offensively, they did open the game with two long, pretty easy touchdown drives. I mean, they just marched right down the field those first two times and put up points against what was supposed to be a pretty vaunted Michigan defense. Yeah, and I think that anytime, anytime the wheels start to come off, you know, and it's that first game of the season, I don't know if it's a little bit of panic sets in, and then you start to press, but... I'm always amazed at uh, 
how momentum plays a role in college football. It it seems to uh, um, be quite the X factor at different times. Yeah, and again, right, it's an out-of-conference loss. I don't know what we're going to see from Michigan throughout the year, but assuming that they are average and that they might fail to get past Ohio State again, that Harbaugh seat is just going to get hotter and hotter. Yeah, it. I think he. Uh, it's a little toasty, and um, I, I think that he, he's got to he's got to deliver big time. And and I, I don't think that they would get rid of him if he loses to Ohio State again. But it's got to be something where, you know, he can't have more than, you know, four four losses this year i mean no he can get away with with maybe one more time to uh, ohio state but i don't think they can handle four yeah this may not be the last year but if this year does not go well it definitely sets him up for a very dicey 2019 well uh speaking of underperforming programs let's talk about another team that continues to not live up to the hype tom herman's texas longhorns which for the second year in a row lose to a Maryland team that, by the way, does not have half of their coaching staff. <laughs> and I guess I shouldn't laugh because they don't have a coaching staff for pretty sad and messed up reasons, but, I mean, Texas. Is Texas ever going to show up and be a good team again? You know, it, it's interesting. I was looking at some historical records this week, and uh, Mac Brown, in his final season, he went 8-5. and five. And I think the the closest Texas has come since then is a seven win season. And shit's crazy. You know, Mac Brown. I I had forgotten a little bit, but I mean, he had some great years there where it was ten, eleven, twelve win seasons for probably four or five there in a row. Mm-hmm. And then even even later on, I think it was only one losing season that he had in his last even four or five years, but it was that he was eight and five and, you know, not winning those games against the rivals. Um, and they, uh, they haven't gotten back and I don't know what it's going to take to, to get back. I mean, obviously they've got plenty of money. It's not something that this is probably like the wealthiest program in college football, potentially. Yeah. If not wealthiest in the top five of wealthiest, a school with a rich tradition in a state with like you've got high school talent coming out of your butt in that state like there's talent everywhere and they still can't break through and i don't know what it's going to take i mean i don't know who you who you go out and hire and obviously whoever it is they're going to back up the brinks truck Mm -hmm. and but i mean i don't know i it's going to be – I don't know what the answer is because I don't think it's a lack of talent. I I didn't see the game. I don't know what it was in regards yeah, to penalties. I, and I'll be honest, I, I had the game on kind of in the background as I was getting some other stuff ready kind of in preparation for the, the bigger games later in the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think it's kind of twofold. One, it's they have a hard time getting a good steady offensive rhythm. Um, I, I think Sam Ellinger's got a lot of talent, but hasn't quite made the jump from freshman to sophomore year. 
But I think the crazy thing, I think a lot of it's defense. I mean, they're you know letting Maryland go out and drop almost 40 points on them mm-hmm. for the second straight year. And it's, it's Maryland, a, a, for the most part, kind of bottom-dwelling Big Ten school. Yes, and was a bottom-dwelling ACC school before that. I yeah. mean, it's, it's... Never a strong college program. Yeah. It's, I don't know what it's going to take, but I think, uh, I think in Texas they will have, uh, even if it costs them money and they find themselves in a buyout situation, I, I don't think that they will put up with it very long. I, I mean, Harbaugh, he's had uh, plenty of rope up at Michigan and I think, uh, you know, Her, um, Herman, he's probably going to get half the time yeah. that, uh, that Harbaugh's had. So. I, I agree. I think what's going to be interesting, too, it's it's really going to come down to who do you go out and get if you're, if you're Texas? If Charlie Strong, who was a very good coach before coming to Texas, can't succeed, Tom Herman, who almost overnight turned Houston into probably the best group of five team, can't succeed, Sure, you got maybe you set your sights on a on a Nick Saban, on a on a Dabo Sweeney. I mean, you've got maybe the money, but if you're either of those two guys, is it worth it to leave a school where you're playing for a national championship every year to try to rebuild a program that appears to be in a funk and where you're gonna kinda constantly be on the hot seat? I don't think so. Yeah. Um, I don't I don't I mean, know if it's worth it for him. I, I mean, what's the incentive? It's not money, I mean yeah, Nick Saban. They're already he's got plenty very, of money. very well taken care of at that point. So, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, I it's disappointing in the sense that I think uh, I think college football is better when Texas is is competitive and it's a good. I mean, I've been to a game down there and it's a great fan base and obviously um, lots of talent and. I don't need them to be, you know, Alabama good where they are just dominating year in and year out. But I actually do think college football is better when you've got some of the the blue blood, blue blue bloods that are at least competitive and and you know make for some intriguing um, games down the road. Well, speaking of blue bloods, let's talk about one more school, and we kind of alluded to this at the at the outset. Miami LSU, and after the way Miami kind of stormed through and got off to a hot start last year, it did not finish very strong, but a lot of the excitement and hype was around the university, you know, the U is back, and LSU really kind of took those guys to the woodshed, and it was kind of a reminder that a lot of Miami's success last year was very much predicated on creating turnovers and playing kind of safe, minimizing mistakes on offense. And unfortunately for Miami, no turnovers generated. They did have two called back and also a lot of mistakes. And it's a reminder, too, that Malika Rogier is not that great of a quarterback. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, QBR rating of 12.8 for Ew. that game. You know, not and good. He, uh, he was 15 of 35, so well under 50%. Uh, one TD, two interceptions, and... It just the the U is not back, and with LSU, uh, 
I mean, I'm looking at it, and they had 140 yards in the air and 156 yards uh, on the ground. And so that's 296. And so it's not like it was this uh, offensive juggernaut on their end either. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it was definitely serviceable. I mean, if you've got... Um, if you've got a good back and you can chew some clock and, and they like to play that, that style of um, ball control and, and just grind it out, then, you know, you can get away with that. But it's it's definitely not, uh, you know, to a style there LSU with, with no. Joe Burrow. Well, and I think you bring up a really good point there. It's LSU was not, you know, on fire offensively. Miami did outgain them total yards-wise. Um, and as you alluded to at the start, I think LSU is kind of the same old LSU. Good defense, can run the ball really well, and quarterback has always been a question mark for them. And quarterback has kind of been, at best, they don't lose the game for you, but at worst, they can really kind of mess it up for you in some games against the weak teams. And, you know, Burrow, his stats don't really stand out, right? Only 11 for 24, only 140 yards. Um, made some throws when he had to, but it's not like LSU is going to be a threat to throw the ball a ton and mm-hmm. move the ball well through the air. So a a strong win for sure, but like, like you mentioned at the outset, I don't think this necessarily means that LSU is going to be a super dominant, dominant team either. Now, they could surprise us, but I think the same concerns that have always been out there still kind of exist. Yeah, and... Obviously, uh, we'll we'll get to know more about them with that Auburn game coming up. And um, the other thing I meant to to mention with Texas is that I think they play USC in Week Three, right? They do. So, I mean, we'll we'll have a good idea in regards to how Texas bounces back against some, you know, legitimate competition. It's, they're against Tulsa next week, but or this weekend, mm-hmm. but. You know, it'll be interesting to see uh, some of the sifting that happens over the next couple of weeks is, you know, it's still a little too early, I think, to know who's a contender and who's a pretender. Yeah, well, one more uh, game we'll talk about before we preview some of the matches for this week. I made a point to record this game. I got up Sunday and I watched it because it was on super late. But have, have you heard the good word of Hawaii football, Cameron? You know, I, I heard you talking about it uh, with Steven uh, last week, and I, you know, I've got a soft spot in my heart for uh, the Rainbow Warriors, and so it's, I, I'm excited to see it and, and see how they do, but I have not uh, actually seen many of the highlights or watched any of the game, but I know you are are big on them right now. I am extremely high on them right now. By the way, Rainbow Warriors, glad they brought that back and some of the coolest throwback unis possible. I haven't oh. worn those throwback unis yet, but I used to love the old white helmets with the green mask and the kind of the rainbow on the side. Mm-hmm. Just super unique, unlike anything else in college football. Although they have done the cool thing this year where one of the helmets, one of the sides has the islands as the sticker. But this guy, Cole McDonald, man, he is just ripping it up. Now, granted, Colorado State, not great defensively, but Navy... A solid team, a team that's going to make you work. But through two games, already 800 yards passing, nine touchdowns, no interceptions. The run and shoot is back. Now, granted, Hawaii gives up about as much as they get. But 
a pretty favorable schedule, and the way it lines out, they could honestly be seven and zero before they go out to Utah to play their old rival BYU. So definitely, if we were playing stock watch, buy some Hawaii stock, look for their games. They're a fun team. I, I'm always excited to see a, a fun uh, brand of football from out there. And I've actually been to a game out there before. Oh, really? And I How have, yeah. You know, it was, it was really awesome. And it's exciting to... Um, to, to see him get behind that team and it's not like they're selling out to Aloha Stadium every week but you know it's the only thing over there in regards to to, to sports they've got a couple of good high school teams obviously that, uh, that feed division one but you know it's it's just a fun place I mean it's it's interesting to see that competitive side at a football game, but it's still Hawaii. I mean, there's still a lot of smiles, and it's uh, it's interesting. Yeah, hard to be unhappy when you're in Hawaii, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, and talking about Hawaii, you know, one of the things that I did a few weeks ago is I went back and watched some of the old YouTubes of the Colt Brennan days and some of those games against, like, Washington and Boise State. And, you know, when that school is really good, that place fills up and it gets wild. And it's going to take a lot for him to get back to that point. But some at least fun potential for the Hawaii Rainbow Warriors after quite a few down years. Yeah, and, you know, it's you're right on the schedule. There, There's definitely the potential for them to uh, come in to BYU riding that uh, wave. And... You know, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Yeah, and things definitely get tougher beyond that. You know, you look at how it closes out because Nevada's, you know, they really kind of close out. Those last five games are in kind of the, the upper crust of the Mountain West. Nevada, Fresno mm-hmm. State, Utah State, UNLV, San Diego State. So um, still a bit of a push to finish the year with the winning record, which would be the first one since 2010. But definitely a shot and a fun, fun team to watch. So I highly recommend, although... I have yet to find the channel for this week's game against Rice. Keep an eye out for those dudes. Although that Army game is going to be a challenge because that is a 12 noon kickoff in New York, which means that would be a 6 a.m. body time for the Rainbow Warriors. So that game might be a bit dicey. Yeah. Yeah. That might be a bit different. Well, let's uh, let's quickly here before we wrap up, let's just talk real fast about what we kind of expect to see going into week two. And not as many necessarily high-profile matchups, but a few solid games to look forward to. I originally had UCLA and Oklahoma on our list, but let's be honest. um, Oklahoma probably wins that by 30 going away, so (laughs) don't need to waste any time on that. But just given the intrigue of their surprise win last week, tell me what you think about Cal going to Provo to play BYU. I I still think this one is uh, a coin flip for sure, and... With Cal, they, you know, they beat North Carolina, and North Carolina, they've definitely been better the last couple of years than uh, they have been historically, and so I, I, I don't think that uh, BYU should be overconfident. I think they can definitely take some confidence from the Arizona game, but. Um, It'll be interesting to see, because if I'm not mistaken, 
Cal's quarterback, he's more of a traditional passer, isn't he? Well, what's interesting, and actually the funny thing with Cal, is they've actually had a hard time making a decision on the quarterback. Oh, that's right. They 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 played played three three guys last week, yeah. Yeah, they played three, didn't they? Mm Mm-hmm. And I know one of the one of the guys is a little bit more traditional in the pocket. And yeah, Ross Bowers, three... who played a lot last year, is kind of the more of the traditional pocket passer. But the other two are a little bit more mobile, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I mean, it'll be interesting. I you always wonder. Um, I, I don't think the altitude should uh, affect Cal, but. You know, maybe maybe that plays something into it. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I'm if I was putting money on it, I think I would still bet on Cal. To tell you the truth, I'm just not. I, I hope I'm not jaded for life with BYU, but I'm just not to that point. That... Welcome to the club. <laughs> <laughs> so no, that's kind of how I feel. I want them to do well. I just. Do not expect good results often. And I think, to your point, Cal is a very strong team defensively. Well, one of the better defensive teams in the Pac-12, actually. I think Justin Wilcox has done a great job with those guys. Cal has also won nine of their last ten out-of-conference games, going back to 2015. Um, So, you know, they've gone out, they've won some tough games. They've won in Texas. They've won, you know, um, out at North Carolina last year. They beat North Carolina at home this year, beat Ole Miss at home last year. Um, a team that can definitely go out and play well out of conference. So I think Cal wins. I think it's close. I think BYU has a shot. But I would say, you know, Cal likely wins this between, you know, four points to a touchdown. Yeah. I, I think their defense is just a little bit tougher than what BYU faced last week, and that's going to make things a little bit harder for BYU offensively. Yeah, I, unfortunately, I think you're right. Well, let's talk Clemson going to play Texas A&M. A, a kind of a, another chance for this SEC to maybe sneak in a marquee win, although Clemson is extremely good. You know, hang on to that number two ranking. A&M in, in a bit of a rebuild with Jimbo Fisher. Interesting that, obviously, Jimbo and Dabo, great names, by the way, awesome names, <laughs> Jimbo and Dabo, you know, have faced off a lot back in the Clemson FSU days. Um, they've split all those matchups since Jimbo came to FSU in 2010. So I'm still leaning Clemson, although it is on the road, and A&M is going to be a tough matchup. I think just the talent level at this point is still leaning heavily in Clemson's direction. I, I think it'll be you know, more of a 10 to 17 point win. I don't think Clemson blows them out, but I do think they can still take this. Yeah, I think I would pick Clemson in this one. And the the main driver for that is just you know Jimbo's he he's in year one there at Texas A and M and uh, Clemson is just a well oiled machine and I mean I would I be shocked if Texas A and M won the game no not necessarily I mean it's an SEC school I mm-hmm. think they put up fifty nine points last week um, I mean. Granted, it was against Sisters of the Poor type of thing. I don't know who they played, but it yeah. was not. But I mean, if if I'm putting money on it, I'm I'm going Clemson for sure. Yeah, I think Clemson is still kind of the the strong favorite there. Now, moving to probably the most marquee game of the week, SC going up to play Stanford. It's been an odd quirk in the schedule the last few years, where this now is an early game in the year for both teams. 
And if Stephen was on, I'm sure Stephen would be high, high, and heavy on Stanford. Um, <laughs> I still, though, do like Stanford in this game. I, I think Wallace has got a lot of potential in these young guys. And although SC did beat Stanford twice last year, JT Daniels has a ways to go before he's Sam Darnold. Um, obviously questions about SC's defensive line after what UNLV did to them last week. I think Bryce Love will be motivated to come out and put on a good show after last week. And I think it has potential to be close, but I do think Stanford wins this one by at least a touchdown. Now, you might not have these stats off the top of your head, but it seems like this is always an interesting game with the home team and the away team where um, sometimes they, they are the road team is winning this game. It, Am I, am I making that up, or am I just thinking back to maybe some key games where uh, Stanford has acted as spoiler? Or... You're close. So actually, um, SC won last year um, in the Coliseum, but lost the previous year down up there in Palo Alto. And if you remember, that was, I think, the last start before Clay Hilton wised up and decided to start Sam Darnold. That, that mm. was the uh, one of the Max Brown mistakes there for, uh, for Hilton. Uh, prior to that, though, uh, Stanford had one in 2015 up in, or excuse me, I keep getting confused. Stanford had one down, down at the Coliseum in 2015. Um, but SC1 up in Palo Alto 2014 in Sarkeet's first year. So it has been, you know, a good amount of back and forth. Uh, there was yeah. that stretch in the post-Carroll, still Harbaugh years where Stanford had ripped off, I think, four in a row. Um, it's been a little more evenly balanced. You know, it was really weird. Last year, SC ran the ball extremely well against Stanford and then kind of failed to do so against Texas the following week. Um, it's still early. I mean, it's, just, it's hard to know exactly what to make of Stanford this year, but um, I, I still think just given they have a little more experience coming back, their line play is usually always a bit stronger than SC's. And just knowing, again, what we saw against UNLV the week before, it still feels like a, a likely Stanford win. Yeah. I mean, I as just as a college football fan, I'm excited to uh, to have that game here early in the year. Uh, obviously, it's great at the end of the year as well. It's a fun one to, to have there, but it does make for some compelling football early in the year when uh, maybe we're, we're lacking some of the marquee games that we had on week one. So... Yeah, be definitely. interesting to see. And then the last kind of intriguing matchup, and this is almost really reflective of just what we saw in Week One. Michigan State comes out to close to my house. They're going to come play Arizona State in Tempe. Did you catch any of that Michigan State Utah State game last week? Uh, I caught a little bit on uh, just a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, we were out to dinner with friends and, and saw probably the, that fourth quarter, and just kind of shocked that Utah State had managed to hang around and. I think that's where some of the intrigue comes in. Who the heck knows how that translates to, to Week 2, but Michigan State struggling to put away Utah State, and then Arizona State playing a very strong opener. And again, just with Michigan State, I have to come out here, I have to deal with the heat. It'll be an evening kickoff and still probably a balmy, like, 98 in Tempe. So <laughs> that could also be a factor. It's also a good reminder that uh, I will go to an ASU game at some point, but probably in November. Yes. When it's not so hot outside. But I, this one, honestly, to me, is kind of a toss-up. I just I don't haven't seen enough of either of these teams to have a good sense of their tendencies. Uh, obviously, Arizona State at home, kind of in their own element. I like to give them a slight edge. 
but we'll see. I, I think it's going to be a fascinating showdown. I think, gun to my head, ASU's got a chance to maybe pull off a signature upset. It'll be close, you know, maybe a, a three-point win, but a game I'm, I'm very intrigued by, to say the least. Yeah, it's it's an interesting one to, to look at based off of um, who their first two opponents were mm-hmm. with Michigan State playing Utah State, and which... And Arizona State playing uh, UT San Antonio, I think, is who they played, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so it, out of that matchup, I think Utah State's the better team. And Utah State has definitely uh, had some times where they have gone into those early season games and really given schools uh, a run for their money. I, it was it even, it might have been Auburn a few years back that. Was it Auburn that Utah State went yes, down? Yes, they took them overtime. It was the year after Auburn won the national title. It was 2011. That game gave yeah. me a massive sense of panic. <laughs> and and so, you know, it's it's a little difficult to know. Is that just Utah State playing up and, you know, causing some issues mm-hmm. there? But I I think in my pick up I picked uh, Michigan State. Um, as I've looked across a couple of different spots, I saw on ESPN with all of their, uh, you know, writers and, and contributors, it seemed like it was, <clears throat> excuse me, it seemed like it was pretty evenly split of uh, half taking Michigan State and half taking ASU. And so I just don't know what to make of a 49 to 7 win over. Yeah, San Antonio, right? This is kind of San a point Antonio. Flip. So. Yeah, that's a tough one to nail down for sure. Well, lots of intrigue, and it just it feels good to have college football back in our lives for sure. Well, I know you had done some research on kind of overrated, underrated teams. Stephen and I were talking about that last week with the release of the first kind of preseason poll, and now that we're a week in, obviously we've seen some movement. But I'd be curious to know from your perspective who you feel like at, at this point here going into week two is ranked too high or maybe ranked too low. Yeah, let me, uh, so I, I think, I think Penn State may actually be ranked a little, a little too high. And historically, the voters have actually been, at least the AP voters have actually been pretty spot on with Penn State. Most of the time when uh, they're targeted to do well, they they end up performing and and they're not usually picked, um, you know, year in and year out to be in the top 25. So when they are in there, they've seemed to do well, but they, they struggled against Appalachian state. And I think you're seeing the effects of, uh, uh, Barkley being gone Mm -hmm. from, from Penn state. And so, and despite having McSorley back, I still think that's, you just don't know, right? The offense is a little one dimensional at this point. Yeah. So, I mean, that would probably be the one that that sticks out to me. Um, the the others. I mean, I don't think there's anyone on that Virginia Tech. That'll be interesting to see if if they really are, you know. Uh, a number 12 type team in the nation. Yeah, ex- exactly right. That becomes a, well, is FSU just garbage this year? Or is Virginia Tech really that good? And it's funny, you look at their schedule, I think that um, home game against Notre Dame in early October will be kind of that, that defining moment. 
Uh, they don't really play anybody for the next four weeks, right? Some lower-level schools, then Duke comes to visit them. Um, but if they're undefeated going to that Notre Dame game, I think that'll be kind of that uh, the test. Yeah, did did you see uh, uh, Willie Taggart bringing the heat against uh, Virginia Tech? Yeah, I saw that. But you know what? I watched a good chunk of that game. And you could you could claim, you know, well, look, they tried to slow down our tempo, so on and so on. I saw FSU bungle so many plays, even inside the five while they were trying to score. I, yeah. think, I think FSU just has some offensive issues. I, I, don't, I just don't think they executed well. Um, I mean, we, we kind of heard these things, you know, when teams would play Oregon and they would fake some injuries to try to slow Oregon down. Maybe there's a slight element to that, but FSU looked so bad. There's way more going on than just Virginia Tech slowing the game down with injuries. I mean, Virginia Tech slowing it down doesn't cause Jean, DeAndre Francois to throw three interceptions. Yeah. He did that on his own. Yeah, so... Uh, more than anything, I was just surprised that, uh, you know, the you, you hear it, you expect to hear it from fans and some commentators and, mm-hmm. you know, maybe even uh, a player that gets a little loose with the mic, but I was surprised to uh, to see it coming from the coach. Yeah, you that know, was a that, little surprising. Uh, I don't know. I don't think that's a, a great look, you know. No, and it's really like you're just trying to deflect blame because you just got your butt kicked in your home opener. Yeah. Uh, that, that was rough. So, you know, outside of that, the uh, I think it's the Virginia Tech and Penn State where they may be up there a little too high. And, uh, um, I mean, even LSU at number 11, that could potentially be a little bit of over overranking. Yeah. And I guess we'll see what happens when they face Auburn here in two yeah. weeks. That'll definitely be kind of the telling moment for them. I am curious about, this is a little off the cuff here, but I am curious about your thoughts on the University of Central Florida. Yeah, so UCF, obviously I've got a little bit of a bias against them just in the sense of they knocked off Auburn last year in the Peach Bowl and that brought me some sadness. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, The problem is it's just hard to equate what happens in a group of five versus a power five. And there's definitely something to be said for running the table. And I think They've got somewhat of a chance to do that again this year. I think it's just hard to replicate consecutive years. But, I mean, you look at the schedule, right? Um, you know, they do go play at UNC. They got Pitt coming to visit them. But there's really no marquee higher-ranked team. And, granted, they can't 100% control that. These schedules are created, you know, months, years, really, in advance, mm-hmm. especially for the out-of-conference stuff. Um, I think they've got the potential to make some noise. Um, but it's just... It would be really hard for me to put a an unbeaten UCF team in over like a one-loss conference champion. Yeah, I think just given the level of difficulty in who those teams play, I, I think they're really good, and I think this might be a good argument for expanding the playoff beyond the four teams. But I think you would have to see some upsets of some higher-ranked teams for them to really qualify for that top four spot. Yeah, it'll just be interesting to see with with that them being and said, they're really State. good. Oh yeah, and it's surprising to uh, to see, you know, because I feel like uh, they they were pretty solid, and then I I feel like they dipped down for for a couple of years mm-hmm. there, and now they're riding that wave again, and you know, I I don't know that there's going to be. Um, 
you know, there's no one that jumps out that says, okay, yeah, that's the team that's going to take them down. I think it'll mm-hmm. be more of that uh, freak game where, you know, they turn the ball over and it's an unexpected loss as opposed to something being circled on the calendar. So, you yeah. know, they really have to watch out for that one. I so. mean, it would be something else. if they Let's assume that they somehow go undefeated in the regular season again this year and you've got two consecutive years of undefeated football. It might be hard to keep them out at that point, just given a two-year body of work. Um, but but I, I think it's just the nature of college football. It's just so hard to do. Yeah. And you know, I, I even I'm looking at some of their just some of the kind of advanced metrics. I mean, you know, they're not favored in two games this year. Going to play at UNC and at Memphis, those are potential slip-up games. But you're right. You know, Navy could get hot. Cincinnati could get hot. Right. They generate some turnovers. Things happen and. That's what makes college football as crazy as it is. Is there is always that unpredictable nature to it. So they they might be challenged to replicate the success from last year, but we'll see. Yeah, It'll be interesting to watch for sure. You know, one other team just to to keep a bit of an eye on, and it's early, so consider this a cautious stock buy. But looking at West Virginia, you know, currently sitting at fourteen, there's always that school that kind of makes the leap from outside that top four or five into some of those initial playoff rankings. And while, you know, Tennessee is down this year, they did blow out Tennessee, What's what I find interesting is there are two biggest potential in-conference showdowns, TCU and Oklahoma, have to come out to Morgantown. Hmm. So they do play at Texas, but we don't really know what to make of Texas. Their toughest real game in conference will probably be at Oklahoma State. Now, they do have, I mean, it's a brutal stretch at the end, right? So their last four games at Texas... TCU comes to play them at Oklahoma State. Oklahoma comes to play them. So uh, that's tough to get through, but um, at least in their conference, I could see West Virginia making some noise and potentially vying for at least their conference championship. Yeah, the the one true champion out of the Big 12, right? (laughs) The Big 12 with 10 teams. (laughs) Yeah. So it, it... Speaking of the Big 12, though, is this did they have a conference championship game last year, or is this oh, going to be their first year with that man, conference championship? I forget. Oh, what did they do? I, I think this is their first year. I think this is the first year of it. Yeah, I'm honestly trying to remember now what they did last year. It's such a dump. Like, seriously, Big 12, just add, like, two more teams, please, and give us, like, a real <laughs> conference championship. No one wants this yeah. nonsense. I'm not even saying add BYU. Just add somebody. Yeah. So have this garbage going on. Because the problem is, right, you're, you know, honestly, I've almost kind of got this mindset after Auburn beat Georgia once then lost to them in the conference championship game the week after. Uh, there's part of me that's kind of like, look, if the championship game is going to be a rematch, how about we just don't play it? Now, I realize conferences would never do that given the revenue and the TV money involved and everything else. Um, but it does kind of render that championship game a bit moot, it seems like, right? Yeah. Maybe just a replay. But in fact, no, they did have it last year. It was TCU and Oklahoma. And Oklahoma it blew was, out. yeah. But again, it, it was a replay of an earlier game. It's like, is there is there really any sense in playing this a second time when in that conference they do play everybody? I don't know. Not a huge fan of that. Yeah. Yeah, we'll have to see what happens. But, uh, I, you know, I've always kind of been not, a, not necessarily a fan of... Uh, West Virginia, but uh, I remember Pat White being there. Yeah, Pat White, and Steve Slayton. That was an exciting duo. Yeah, I mean, and 
obviously like the college game day of having people show up with uh, coonskin caps and you know the Davy Crockett mm-hmm. musket and everything like that. It's it's fun to uh, to see that group and it, it's a fun brand of football when they spread it out like that. And it is, it, and they've got a very exciting offense this year with uh, with Will Greer, uh, David Sills playing wide receiver. So they, they've got the chance to be explosive. So it'll be it'll be a lot of fun. Well, my friend. Many games to look forward to. Thanks for jumping in. Thanks for doing this with us. Hope you had a good time. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks awesome. for the invite. Well, we will uh, we'll totally plan on doing a three-man pot with Mr. Steven next week, and we'll talk about uh, our predictions. We'll see if we did any better than last week. Steven and I did not do that well last week. <laughs> we'll yeah, look ahead to the week three stuff. I look forward to it. All right, man. Sounds good. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. Thanks, Ken. Thanks again to Cameron for jumping on and doing the pod with us tonight. Steven and I really want to make sure we're getting an episode out a week during the football season, so really appreciate his help tonight, and we look forward to doing a three-man pod. And next week, going to be a lot of fun. Hope you guys enjoy another week of college action and the return of the NFL here in a few short days. It's going to be great. And please don't forget, you can find us on iTunes under the Rational Sports Pod. You can find us on SoundCloud. You can also visit our website, rationalsportspod.com, for the full archive of all of our past episodes. And if you've got questions for us, things you want us to talk about on the pod, feedback for the pod, hit us up, irrationalsportspod at gmail.com. And by the way, when you're on iTunes, if you do have a moment, please rate and review us. We really appreciate it, and it helps us out quite a bit with any kind of iTunes rankings so more people can find the podcast. So... Thanks again, guys. We'll be back next week with a recap of the Niners opener with Drew. Back to talk college football. And that'll be about it. I want to do a... We have long, long overdue basketball offseason review to do with Brandon. But I will be on my way, as mentioned, down to Auburn late next week for the Auburn-LSU game. So basketball might need to wait, wait about two weeks. But we'll be back with that real soon as well. So thanks again, guys. And look for more episodes next week. Thank you.